Now let's turn for our scripture reading to the book of Acts, and we'll read the first 16 verses of chapter 22. It's from Paul's defense um, before the Jewish leaders. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus, to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon. Suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go to Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me, and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will, and see the just one, and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Connection with our scripture reading, we turn our book of forms and prayers to Lord's Day 26. And we're going to continue reading into the first two questions and answers of Lord's Day 27. How does holy baptism remind and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross benefits you personally. In this way, Christ instituted this outward washing and with it promised that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and his spirit wash away my soul's impurity, that is, all my sins. What does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? To be washed with Christ's blood means that God, by grace, has forgiven our sins because of Christ's blood poured out for us in his sacrifice on the cross. To be washed with Christ's Spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed and sanctified us to be members of Christ, so that more and more we die to sin and live holy and blameless lives. Where does Christ promise that we are washed with his blood and spirit as surely as we are washed with the water of baptism? In the institution of baptism, where he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved. 
but whoever does not believe will be condemned. This promise is repeated when Scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. Lord's Day 27. Does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? No, only Jesus Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the water of rebirth and the washing away of sins? God has good reason for these words. To begin with, he wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ take away our sins just as water removes dirt from the body. And more importantly, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly washed of our sins spiritually as our bodies are washed with water physically. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we read those remarkable words that Ananias spoke to Saul in, in chapter 22 of Acts, verse 16, where he says, Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. And what is so striking about uh, that command is that it sounds like baptism and washing away one's sins are one and the same thing. By being baptized, he's washing away his sins. In fact, uh, this is the basis for that uh, statement in our... Lord's Day before us, Lord's Day 26, which says that baptism is called the washing away of sins. And then it makes reference to this passage here. But what's also striking is that the one being baptized here, uh, Saul uh, or Paul, uh, he is active in this connection between the washing away of sins and baptism. Uh, as if by being baptized... He is washing away his sins. And so that leads to very important questions like, well, what is that connection actually between baptism and the washing away of sins? What does baptism work? What does it do? What is it? Why is it important? Well, our theme attempts to give a concise answer to the, uh, these questions and that baptism assures believers of their spiritual cleansing. And we want to flesh out that theme from our catechism's confession of the teaching of Scripture on the meaning of baptism. And we begin by considering together that baptism signifies the completeness of our cleansing. The water of baptism points us to a thorough washing from sin. Yes, the scripture teaches us that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And, uh, we use such compre, or we hear such comprehensive, uh, language in our confession where it says, as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and his spirit wash away my soul's impurity. That is all my sins. And again, in, in answer uh, 72, Jesus Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit cleanse us uh, from all sin. So it's a very comprehensive, thorough kind of cleansing uh, that is associated with the meaning of baptism. That means that however many those sins may be, 
however offensive to God, however hateful in God's sight, however hurtful to others, God cleanses us from all our sins. In Isaiah chapter 1, we read, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. And verse 18, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. We heard the psalmist anguished cry in in Psalm 51, where he prays, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This washing here uh, refers to a kind of washing that's not simply a matter of, of a surface cleaning, but rather the kind of washing in which something that might be stained and filthy like a garment is is absolutely saturated and soaked and so cleansed thoroughly. That's what David dares to pray for in this psalm. When he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Baptism signifies cleansing that is deep, that is extensive, that is thorough, that extends to all our sin and uncleanness. And to appreciate that, consider uh, some of these Old Testament examples or these biblical examples of such cleansing. I've already begun to speak of, of David's uh, cleansing from sin. Think of it. The heading of this psalm is a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. That's a reference to David's adultery with Bathsheba. Adultery of a most heinous kind. It's not a matter of David falling in love with this woman. It's a matter of pure lust. David saw her bathing from his rooftop, and he acted like one of these eastern despots of that world. A king who has the power to take what he wants when he wants it. And so he sent for her, and he took her. And then to cover up his sin, he had her husband murdered. Yes, it's in this context that we... We hear his cries for, for cleansing and washing. Cries for a complete purification of his guilty soul before God. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Now hyssop, that was a kind of herb that was actually used in, in Old Testament ceremonial rites of cleansing. It was mixed, mixed with water or with ashes, and that mixture was used to, to cleanse those that had been rendered ceremonially unclean by touching a dead body, for example, or even contracting leprosy or other things that would, that would make them unacceptable, unable to approach the worship of God. And hyssop might also refer to a kind of, uh, of a branch that was used to sprinkle such uh, mixtures to indicate a kind of cleansing that God provided for uncleanness. David appeals to that, but he appeals for such a washing as would render him as white as snow. That's that, that imagery that we also heard in uh, Isaiah chapter 1, that promise of a, of a complete purification. Whiter than snow. What is whiter than snow? That really emphasizes what a tremendous 
complete forgiveness and cleansing is in view here. Or think of Saul. Think of Saul, the persecutor of the church and the blasphemer. His name would fill Christians with fear because they knew that he was officially authorized to interrogate them and to put them in chains and imprison them. He persecuted many Christians unto death, we're told. Think of the people who were traumatized by the beatings that they suffered at his hand or by the imprisonment that they endured. Think of children left without fathers or perhaps mothers. He persecuted men and women, husbands without wives and wives without husbands. All that blood guilt on his hands. Completely, suddenly, it almost seems like easily washed away. How can such sinners be washed clean? By years of penance? By somehow making amends for the great evil that was done? Somehow undoing the harm? Well, how do you undo the harm? of such sins? How could reparations be made? What kind of uh, truth and reconciliation commission could ever accomplish a kind of reconciliation and the undoing of such evil? It's impossible. It's impossible with respect to the harm done to others. And yet the psalmist knew that he was dealing with God against you and you only have I sinned. The greatest guilt of sin is that it is committed against God. How can such sinners, also like you and I, be washed clean? What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Yes, that's what that hyssop pointed to. And that's significant also as we consider baptism, because hyssop, and that mixture of water and ashes, well, that didn't move, remove sin any, any more than the blood of bulls or goats or the water of baptism itself washes away sin. But it pointed to the washing away of sin through Christ's blood. Just as the water of baptism proclaims to us such a cleansing as to cleanse from guilt and make me pure. It's that double cure that we sing about the forgiveness of sins, and even the purification of our hearts before God. You see, baptism, it signifies a two-part kind of cleansing. We hear that in question uh, number uh, 70. It says, what does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? That speaks of a two-fold kind of cleansing. It speaks of uh, the forgiveness of sins. And it speaks of newness of life. It points to justification on the one hand. And it also points to sanctification on the other. And you may know that water in Scripture, even in its symbolic use, often refers to both of these aspects of our cleansing in the sight of God. Water symbolizes the blood of Christ that washes us from our sins. But water also symbolizes the purifying, renewing work of the Holy Spirit. 
Isn't that what David also longed for? Isn't that what he prayed for in Psalm 51? He prays that he might be washed whiter than snow. And then he prays, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. He not only sought to be right with God in terms of the forgiveness of his sins, but he sought the renewal of his life and heart before God. After having lived for nine months in the guilt of his sin, distant and alienated from God, he prays for restoration. The water of baptism speaks of the washing away of our sins, and it speaks likewise of the washing of regeneration, that spiritual renewal that the Holy Spirit accomplishes within. See, that's how our catechism defines it. It describes uh, washing with Christ's blood in terms of being forgiven because of Christ's blood poured out for us in a sacrifice on the cross. Then it says to be washed with Christ's Spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed and sanctified us to be members of Christ. And then it says, so that more and more we die to sin and live holy and blameless lives. The Holy Spirit gives new birth. The Holy Spirit uh, makes alive those who are spiritually dead and begins that work of sanctification. But that is a progressive work, isn't it? It's not completed in this life. There is this more and more aspect to it. But remember, brothers and sisters, that the water of baptism also signifies the certainty, not only of that renewal, but of that ongoing, more and more sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And what a comfort that is to us. The fact that it's imperfect in the sense that we are not completely sanctified and made holy after the image of Christ while we struggle with sin and failure in this life. That doesn't mean that it's doubtful. That doesn't mean that it's true only when I feel renewed or only when I feel spiritually vibrant. Well, how do I know that? Because baptism doesn't lie to us. Baptism signifies the certainty of God's grace in forgiving our sins, and renewing our lives. Yes, in a decisive way as believers, but in a progressive and ongoing way also throughout our lives. That leads us to consider, secondly, that baptism confirms to us the promise of our cleansing. It signifies this, it points us to it, but in such a way as to confirm the truth of uh, of this connection and God's promise to us. God promises us this washing with Christ's blood and spirit. And this promise is proclaimed by the gospel, with or without the sacraments, right? Abraham believed the promise of the removal of sin uh, signified by circumcision. And he believed that promise while yet uncircumcised. He believed in God and his faith was accounted for righteousness before he received that sign or, or the seal of the righteousness of faith, which is circumcision. Now, in Abraham's case, yes, he was circumcised. 
But think of the thief on the cross. He may have been circumcised, probably likely, but he had never been baptized. And yet he is assured by our Lord Jesus Christ that he would be with him in paradise later on that very day. The forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to us in the gospel and it's received by us by believing the promise of the gospel. And baptism is added to the word. It is added to the word to confirm the faith that God works in us by the preaching of the gospel through the Holy Spirit. That's the order. It is added to the word as a precious gift. It is added to the word as a great help to teach us and to assure us of that cleansing which God promises in the gospel. Baptism, we might say, is a powerful, Christ-given visual aid. It's more than that. It's a sensible, tactile aid, you might even say. But it's the kind of help uh, that connects with our day-to-day life experience. It's something that children can understand because water washes away uh, the dirt of our bodies. It washes away the, the filth, the stain, the stink, if you will, of filth. And it feels good to be clean. And we feel presentable when we're clean. And the connection between water and cleansing is so certain. And it's, it's so simple, sweetly simple, that Christ joined it with the most profound spiritual truth that we could ever grasp for ourselves. And that's repeated in the language of our catechism when it uses such words as, as certainly, as surely, just as, so truly. We hear that again and again, don't we? As surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and spirit wash away my soul's impurity. The blood and spirit of Christ take away our sins just as water removes dirt from the body. We are assured by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly washed of our sins spiritually as our bodies are washed with water physically. The simplicity, the clarity, the suitability of this sign which our Lord Jesus Christ has given to us is designed to be an effective and a comforting, reassuring confirmation of the truth of His promises that we believe, but our faith is often weak. And God in His condescension has given to us these helps. In fact, God calls the one as if it were the other. In question uh, 73, we read, Why does the Holy Spirit call baptism the water of rebirth and the washing away of our sins? Why does the Holy Spirit call baptism these things if water doesn't really wash away our sins? What's the point of it? Isn't that uh, something that could be very confusing and, and misleading? Can't people then uh, mistake the, the meaning of baptism as if it actually itself accomplishes these things? 
Well, this is, this is the language of the Holy Spirit, for one thing. And so we don't criticize it. And we don't uh, try to uh, change it in such a way as to avoid possible misunderstandings. God called circumcision itself his covenant. No, it wasn't his covenant, but it was a sign of his covenant designed to assure Abraham and his seed down through the generations of the certainty of God's promise that I will be a God to you and to your seed after you. And to help you to believe it, I'm placing this sign on your very body that directs you constantly to my provisions of grace for you. You know, it's, it's as if, and we say this reverently, it's as if the Holy Spirit is willing to be misunderstood by superstitious people. And we might ask, well, why? And we can answer that the benefits outweigh uh, the danger of abuse. In other words, God is more concerned to comfort believers than avoid something that could be misused and abused or misunderstood. Or we can put it this way positively. He is so kind and gracious to us in our weakness, and he wants us to believe so firmly that he not only says, here, listen to my word, but he says, look, feel, Remember, be deeply and profoundly affected by this divine pledge that seals my promise, my promise as something that is forever faithful and true. So baptism confirms to us the promise of our cleansing. And it's in that connection that baptism comforts us with the certainty of our cleansing. What an experience it must have been for the Apostle Paul. He listened to that that prophetic word that Ananias spoke to him. Uh, he said to him, The God of our fathers had chosen you, that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, Ananias is, is basically repeating the words that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, gave to Ananias to communicate to Paul. You can, you can read these words almost verbatim. There's some slight variation, but in chapter 9, in the account of uh, Paul's uh, conversion, we have this uh, record of, of the Lord speaking to Ananias to bring this message uh, to Saul. And Saul heard those words, and he listened to them, and he obeyed that gracious uh, summons, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. What an experience it must have been for Saul to discover that he had been so wrong about the Lord Jesus. To realize that he had been so guilty for opposing him, for persecuting him as he persecuted his followers to death. And then to know that forgiveness of sins is assured to him, so freely given to him, and that he is accepted by God. He's actually commissioned to a high and holy task by the very Lord whom he had blasphemed and forced others to blaspheme. 
and all the riches of that grace signified and assured to him as the water pours down his head and on his garments, or if he's immersed, or if it's sprinkled upon him, doesn't matter. Can you imagine the experience of that? The wondrous grace? Maybe to help you imagine that, imagine how the victims of his cruelty might have reacted to the idea that this persecutor has taken the lives of their loved ones, who has caused such trauma to them, has just been assured of his complete cleansing from all his sins. He has just been assured that he is washed clean, thoroughly, that he's accepted by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's even given a high commission and a task to preach that message that he once opposed. You can imagine that it would take some grace to rejoice in that, wouldn't it? In, in fact, it would it would take the kind of grace that uh, leads sinners to know themselves as those who have been freely forgiven merely by grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. Just upon receiving it, just just by believing it, and that everything is visually, in a concrete way, assured to them in the water of baptism. It would be interesting to have heard what Saul said as he called upon the name of the Lord while being baptized, right? These things are joined together, aren't they? In verse 16, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Was Saul reciting Psalm 51 as he felt the water of baptism pour down his face? Wash me. We don't know. It's very likely, very possible. Saul knew the scriptures. And in calling upon the Lord, he was receiving the promised grace that the scriptures proclaim. It would have been nice to hear that prayer. How wonderful to think about it. How wonderful it would be to see many people flock to the sound of the gospel and hear the message of the complete forgiveness of all their sins. However dark, however hopeless and desperate their situation might be. I just began to read again the, the account of the tremendous awakening, spiritual awakening that took place in, in Britain and in, in the United States and in Wales in the 18th century under the ministry of, of uh, George Whitfield. And uh, it begins by describing the situation of the city or the, the, the country of England at that time. It's it, For one thing, it had succumbed to deism. It had basically bought in largely to a kind of deistic view of God, that God just kind of created the world and winds it up to let it run on its own. And even the churches that didn't buy into that were so, so weak, so nominal. And the state of society was horrific. We hear uh, today of the, the desperate and hopeless cases of opium death. But that was a time that was marked by what is called the gin craze. The importation of gin had been outlawed, but what that meant was that people were distilling their own liquor. And it says that every sixth house basically was a distillery. 
and gin was cheap and people were drinking themselves to death constantly and fetal alcohol syndrome and such things were destroying society. society. Observers, commentators that were not Christian saw the utter disintegration and destruction of that society. And you might think, hopeless, desperate, but God worked in such a marvelous way. He raised up men to preach the gospel. Men like Whit- Whitfield who spoke in the open air to thousands of people from all walks of life. And how many of them were convicted of their sins and believed the gospel. And the state of the country was, was largely transformed by it. It's encouraging to think that such things are possible by the power of God. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see multitudes flocking into this church, hearing the gospel, confessing Christ, desiring baptism? What an experience it must have been for Paul. Baptism comforts us with the certainty of our cleansing because the meaning of Paul's baptism is shared by every believer. It's interesting that Paul is described as being active in his baptism. In the language there, I referenced that earlier. It says, uh, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. As if by being baptized, Paul is doing something to wash away his sins. What does that mean? Paul certainly didn't baptize himself. And he was incapable of literally purging himself from sin. Only the blood of Christ washes away from sin as it is received by faith. But this suggests, it actually describes faith as a very active movement of the soul as it is so often described in Scripture in terms of coming to Christ, receiving Christ, even exemplified in the Old Testament by Naaman who who had to go to the Jordan and had to dip seven times in the water with the assurance that he would be clean. And he was. He was clean from his leprosy by that activity of the faith. And indeed, it's the activity of faith that characterizes every saved sinner. That's made clear in the language of Revelation where it depicts this vast, innumerable multitude before the throne of God, robed in white robes. Who are these? These are the ones who have come out of great tribulation, and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Again, it's a striking figure, isn't it? How do you make clothes white by soaking them in blood? It's the figurative language of souls who have been purified by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, receiving that cleansing that he assures to sinners so that their lives are washed clean and pure from sin. And they're accepted by God. And that meaning of baptism, of this washing away of our sins through the blood and spirit of Christ is ours. And it's a meaning that remains for life. That's why baptism baptism itself is never to be repeated. And that's precisely because its meaning uh, serves us throughout life. Even the first question, it says, how does holy baptism remind and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross benefits you personally? You're baptized personally. That little boy this morning 
had the name of the triune God. And the significance of that is spelled out in the form for infant baptism, placed upon his forehead, so that he is nur- as he is nurtured in the gospel and the Christian faith, he might be comforted and assured that God is so intent upon his salvation that he not only proclaims the gospel to his ears, but he directs him constantly to his baptism which God adds to the promise of the gospel so that he might be comforted and ensured of the forgiveness of sins and renewal of the Holy Spirit through all the various experiences and doubts and troubles of his young life, throughout his life. The meaning of baptism serves us throughout life. When we are taught its meaning on sermons about baptism, when we witness a baptism and thus are reminded of our baptism, when we join together, we call upon the Lord in our, in our, our songs and our prayers in connection with the administration of baptism, when we remind our children of Christ's gift to them, when we face trials and failures and doubts, and we fall into sin and need to remember God makes an eternal covenant of grace with us. And the baptism is designed to assure us of that so that we do not despair and that we do not continue in sin. But we continue to cling to God, cling to him throughout our troubles, call upon him in our distress, call upon him in the hour of our death. You see, the comfort of baptism can hardly be exaggerated for believers, right? You know, sometimes I, ha- I have to remind uh, others and, uh, in, in the catechism class or in describing the form for baptism that, that the form for baptism is a, is a profession of faith. It's a profession of what baptism means to believers. And it can only be received and understood by faith. It's not like a guarantee uh, that uh, whoever's baptized goes to heaven, period, end of story. No, the promises of God are not like a guarantee. I've said it before, that you get from the from Sears or from Home Depot or whatever when you buy an appliance and you stick that guarantee in the cupboard and you haul it out if your washer um, gets broke. No, the promises of God are personal. They're an engagement with us. And those promises are only treasured and received as we believe them, as we as we cling to them. But the comfort of baptism can hardly be exaggerated for believers. Why is that? Well, that's because looking to our baptism, remembering our baptism, is not something different than looking to Christ. It's not something different than remembering Christ. It's coming to Christ. It's coming to Christ by the blood of His cross in the fullness of the grace by which He reveals Himself to us through word and sacrament so that our baptism, no less than the preaching of the gospel, directs our faith to His one sacrifice offered upon the cross for us. I think that's expressed in the language of uh, of Hebrews in chapter 10 where it says after giving again the assurance of the the new covenant 
promises of the forgiveness of sins and God writing his law upon our hearts, the assurance that there therefore is no more an offering for sin. And then it says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, through his own death, we're given access into God's holy presence. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Again, that, that's, that's uh, an allusion to the language of ceremonial cleansing, which pointed to the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from sin. But he's even more explicit when he says, and our bodies washed with pure water. What does that mean? Take a shower before you come to church? No. It means we approach God as those whose hearts have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ and who have been washed by the water of baptism by which God assures us of, of His forgiveness and our acceptance in His sight. And we draw near to Him on the basis of this fullness of grace that He proclaims to us in His Word and by the sacraments, giving us this rich assurance of our eternal salvation in Him. So to treasure and to value your baptism, brothers and sisters, is not something different than valuing and treasuring the Lord Jesus Christ. Because your baptism is the sign and seal that Christ appointed, adding to his word of promise to more fully assure us of his all-sufficient grace. Let's use our baptism for all that it's worth. Let's remember it. Let it serve as a comfort to us. Let it serve for a comfort to young people as they struggle with sin and doubt. Cling to those promises that were proclaimed in the gospel as described also in this wonderful form. And may they direct you constantly to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to confess his name with confidence that his word doesn't lie. His promises don't fail. And you're to receive them and believe them and cling to him, trusting in his grace to forgive you and to renew you, to work in you by his spirit. May God enable us to receive and to live upon this precious gift for his glory and our sanctification. Amen.